0: Hey there Cheryl, how are you doing today? I could not be more fabulous. <laughs> well, that is good to know. <laughs> I'm trying to be very positive. You know, you you fake it till you make it, right? That's
1: right. And it is fall, which means we're seeing shorter days and it's getting dark earlier, and that always brings me a little bit of that kind of gloominess. It's my favorite season, but I also have to make myself be a little more positive.
0: The only thing that gets me through it is football. I got to be really honest, so
1: we can agree on that, even though we don't agree on teams. And we did have a rough start to the football season, where our friendship is concerned.
0: I think I was very gracious in defeat, uh, but our little bit more recent uh, successes have helped a little bit. So
1: we started strong, those Florida State Seminoles, but we have somehow slipped back into our old ways.
0: So still living in a ba- basketball conference, but you know, other than that, <laughs>
1: that's right. It's very timely that with the episode that we're recording right now, I just received an offer on one of my listings today, and it's so relevant to the conversation that we're having. So I want you to tell me what you think is wrong with this offer I received, and it has to do with the special stipulations. Of course it does. Are you surprised? Not at all. (laughs) So the two that stick out to me as being the ones that are the most problematic are as follows. Appliances and fixtures currently in property to remain and in good working condition.
0: You know, we have entire documents that are built in the state of Georgia that uh, realtors or anyone who pays for the forms has access to. What I see most problematic is in one sentence trying to do something that a two-page document is built to do. Right. And I see agents trying to be as concise as possible, but there are reasons that attorneys tend to use more words than that.
1: Well, and there's also reasons that there is a seller's disclosure. Right. There will be one on this property. The seller is just finishing it up and we had told her that we had told this agent that that we would be sending it along and I know what she's trying to do with it but unfortunately it gets into a situation where we're going to remove this stipulation when we send a counter offer because we're going to send in its place the seller's disclosure and also the good working condition as long as they work now, or they work at the time of the inspection, that's also already in the contract. So we're, we're looking at a redundant piece that is is adding confusion
0: more than clarity. I think probably redundancy is the best definition that you can give to that. You can also say that it fundamentally changes something else that's in the contract that you didn't intend to change. Right. Because the words we pick in the contract are there for specific reasons. We have spent an hour talking about a word before. The damaged versus destroyed in condition of property was probably over an hour. Uh, so when you kind of repeat something that's in the contract, but you use different words, you may be tripping into a problem that we've seen and recreating an issue that you shouldn't.
1: And that's exactly the problem I have with this other one, which is in addition to it not being grammatically correct, which just hurts me anyway, it states property to remain in broom swept condition at time of closing. Remain is problematic to me. Broom swept is sort of redundant even though we've removed that phrase from our contracts right. it's still the contracts still do state clean and and free of debris so of course that's already listed but now we've layered confusion and redundancy instead of what i think she's trying to do which is just protect her buyer exactly Along those lines, there's no one way I can think of for an agent to get themselves into trouble during the contract process, writing the offer, writing those inspection addenda, right? Then writing your own stipulations. And at best, you can end up in a mild disagreement with the other side that you hope you work out, even if it gets a little unpleasant or uncomfortable. But at worst, writing a vague stipulation can be interpreted different ways by different parties. Anyone who's brought into the conversation can interpret it a different way. For example, if you're working to settle an earnest money dispute and you bring in a broker or the attorney holding the funds or a mediator or an arbitrator, the can of worms can be enormous. Absolutely. Some of the ones that we saw, though, during this last most recent extreme seller's market we had, I want to give you some funny examples first before we get into the really bothersome ones, <laughs> because you and I get really heated about this. And as much as that might be entertaining for you and me, I think we do owe some entertainment to our listeners. Absolutely. This one came uh, to me from an agent in Fort Wayne, Indiana. And this buyer really wanted the property, Cheryl. They offered to pay one year of Netflix subscription for the sellers. They offered to have the seller's cars detailed up to $300 by a professional car detailer who came to your home. So they were mobile. They offered to hire a taco food truck to feed up to 20 people for the seller's moving day party. They offered $3,500 to upgrade the seller's next home and any upgrades they want. They offered to name their firstborn after the seller, the second one to be named after the other seller. <laughs> they offered to pay for the seller's home inspection on their next home, to provide a monthly bark box subscription to their dog Cujo for 12 months. And the last one, and I know this was probably a joke, it says, For the love of Mary. Please accept our offer, which is over your asking place so we finally have a place to call home.
0: <laughs> and this was all, uh, just just so I understand, this was all in a single offer?
1: This is on one <laughs> addendum to a purchase agreement. It was a single <sighs> offer with untold degrees of begging. But I know you've seen some doozies too. So what are some of the ones you've seen that have, have caught your eye or given you a little bit of a chuckle?
0: I was getting copies of things. I tend to review a lot of the contracts that have any problematic or ambiguous or crazy stipulations. So, of course, I got a flood of them to the point where I held a contest within our firm (laughs) and gave away prizes to our employees who sent us uh, some of these things. The one that hurts your heart and mine probably the most was a buyer to yell, roll tide roll at closing.
1: Oh, no one should ever yell Roll Tide Roll. Sorry, not sorry, Alabama friends.
0: So some of the other ones that we got, the buyer will purchase and deliver one meal per week valued at no more than $50 per meal until conveyance of the property to alleviate the stress of selling and moving.
1: Wait, they were going to deliver those meals themselves? That's uh, a that's a personal promise.
0: According to the way the stipulation yeah. was written, yes. I
1: think they meant food delivery.
0: But I think they did too. I
1: think we're, we're embarking on why STIPS can be problematic, but keep going.
0: They uh, had one that was a gift card of $200 to your favorite restaurant and cash to pay the babysitter. We had a seller, uh, selling agent agrees to pay for one night of babysitting for the seller so they can celebrate their binding contract. So I guess that was the buyer's agent who was giving Hmm. that credit. And we had a buyer will provide the seller at no cost a six-month subscription to the Beer of the Month Club.
1: Oh, wow you know, kudos for creativity, right? right? And as much as we were having to get creative.
0: And, And maybe they were attractive because they at least made you laugh. And when you were looking at a bunch of offers, at least you stopped for a chuckle, right?
1: Definitely. And I will say I was not above making that suggestion in certain circumstances for some of our buyers who really wanted a specific property, not because we thought that For example, a subscription to BarkBox would be the thing that won the offer. We know that money talks. We know that reducing contingencies and those timelines, we know that that speaks to sellers. We know heightened earnest money speaks to sellers. But a lot of what we were doing from the perspective of writing offers was how do we make an offer that might be very, very close in price and contingencies or lack thereof to another offer, how do we make it stand out? Right. And that was more the point. Is a, a one meal a week up to $50 going to win if your offer is 20,000 less than the next highest offer? Probably not. But if, if you're at the same price or you're you're really close, you may get points from that seller for creativity. Exactly. There was one, though, that you and I discussed that really was problematic, and it was one that came in on an actual offer that I received when we did have multiple offers. This was back in March. It was the height of the insanity this spring. When I received this offer from this agent, she was absolutely certain that what she included was enforceable. And this was the one that I found to be most problematic, and we are going to talk in a minute about common errors, Which mainly happen, I think, when the agent writing them actually is trying to do good for their client, right? They're trying to do well by their client. But this is the confidentiality stipulation. And to give our listeners an idea, the stipulation suggested that the seller should not be accepting escalation clauses to begin with. But if they are, she said, please note that we have included an agreement for confidentiality in this offer so that it cannot be escalated against. In other words, she was saying you cannot use this offer as the second best one that someone who wrote to an bump escalation. Up someone thought, else's offer. Right, to bump up their offer. And I shared it with you and I shared it with my broker, and she was very upset this agent when I told her that unless the seller agrees to that in writing, you cannot bind my seller to not use your offer in an escalation circumstance. Anything that you write into an offer is just an offer. Nothing is agreed upon until the seller signs off on that offer or on subsequent counteroffers. That would be the equivalent of saying, if I'm offering you $350,000 on your $400,000 property, because I wrote it in the offer, you've agreed to it.
0: Exactly. And it, it feels different for the agent, I know. But at the point where the seller has agreed to the confidentiality, the seller has also agreed to sell the property to that buyer. And I think that... That would take signing the offer. That is correct. At which point, the whole thing wipes itself out. I believe, and you correct me if I'm wrong, that you you got similar language from a couple of different uh, different agents. So I, I really do think that there's someone out there. And as an instructor, this hurts my heart. There is someone out there that was teaching across brokerages to put this stipulation in there. If they were teaching it as a try this, it's not legally enforceable, but if the listing side doesn't know that, right, it might help you. It's one thing if they were trying to tell agents that this would somehow bind the seller, then that's going to be problematic because that's just not the way contracts work.
1: And I love that so many of the offers I receive seem to come from the agents who have been told to just try it. Because yeah. maybe the listing agent is just that dumb. <laughs> and I think that that trickery, attempting to essentially trick a consumer, it's one thing if you as an agent are outmatched by the other side. Maybe the other agent has more experience, they're a stronger negotiator, they know the contracts better, they know the law better. That's one thing. But when you are trying to trick the other agent, you're also trying to trick a consumer. Right. And that right there not only violates the Realtor Code of Ethics, but it also in some cases could be seen as a violation of the law.
0: Yeah, it's gonna depend obviously on the circumstances, and we have things in the contract, you know, that try and shield agents from liability. That's a big reason, you know. If you don't already know it, that's the reason we write the contracts. They are super helpful for consumers, but they're also there to try and and shield real estate agents because the vast majority of real estate agents are not also attorneys. So we'll do things in there that will limit agents' liability.
1: Now you're talking specifically
0: in this case about the Georgia Association. Of realtors' That's, contracts. That is correct? correct. That is correct. And if you go outside of that and you're operating with a different form, you're, you're going l- rogue. You're literally in the Wild West. <laughs> In those forms, in the in the Georgia Association of Realtor forms, we try and protect agents from that liability. But if you've got a consumer that's actually hurt, I mean, that is that is why you're licensed. That's why I'm licensed because there are regulatory boards that those consumers can go to, or you know, obviously sue you if they feel like you've been damaged
1: obviously we know that we shouldn't be writing our stipulations ourselves. We are told that every broker I've ever known who prides themselves on education tells us that we're taught that in post-license classes in most cases. It should be drilled into us as realtors and real estate agents that we shouldn't write them ourselves. Does it constitute when you do write your own special stipulations? Is that in some way an unauthorized practice of law?
0: It absolutely is. And we'll include some of the information in the show notes if anyone wants links to the Georgia Code. But the first thing you have, obviously, is the practice of law defined. And one of the things that falls very clearly under the practice of law is the preparation of a legal instrument. Uh, of any kind for which legal rights are secured. So clearly a purchase and sale agreement for real property, which is an enormous investment for both the buyer and the seller, is something that's going to be a legal right. The legal right to purchase, the legal right to receive proceeds. There is a carve out for real estate agents Mm -hmm. uh, under a separate code that the completion of forms isn't the practice of law because we want to make sure that agents don't get in trouble for filling out the forms. But what it really says at the end of the day is that they can complete pre-written forms that are out there, not that they can just turn around and create things out of whole cloth. I clearly understand that lawyers can write bad steps too, I've seen them, Um, (laughs) but most of the unfortunate stipulations that I've looked at that are legally problematic, not just fun, you know, to talk about and interesting, the ones that are legally problematic were clearly written without the guidance of an attorney.
1: And I'm glad that you mentioned that there is a carve-out. There is some legislation, I guess you would call it, that protects real estate agents from the unauthorized practice of law as long as we are using those pre-written forms, which are the Georgia Realtors Contract Forms, which you have sat on the forms committee forever. There are realtors and attorneys on those forms, but ultimately those forms are vetted. They are meant to be used to protect us, but also to protect the consumer, so that as we are filling in the blanks, we are filling in things that helps our buyers to determine what they want to offer or our sellers to determine what they want to counter or agree to, but we are not practicing law until we take that step and we start writing those stipulations.
0: Exactly, and the, the forms in and of themselves are usually relatively fill in the blank, and you're right they are built to protect agents from liability but that's because they're built in a way that agents will use them correctly right and and in the best interests of their clients i mean what we're trying to be is Really, very much fair and balanced with the rights and the responsibilities of buyers and sellers. But the more clarity that the real estate agent has, the better the service is that they're giving. And so, most of them are really built for fill in the blank or check a box sort of thing for different options. And we rewrite those things two times a year. We meet every single month to take a look at this stuff but where you really start to see like just an open-ended do something is where you are adding special stipulations to one of the documents.
1: And that sounds like a great place for us to take a quick break.
0: Absolutely. We'll
1: be right back. So we're back and we are talking about special stipulations, why we shouldn't write them ourselves, the errors that we see, the liability that they can bring. Cheryl, what are some of the common errors that you see, the most common things that you see over and over and over again when you're
0: reviewing a contract, what is it that really makes your skin crawl when it comes to special stips? The one that I probably see that makes my skin the crawliest, (laughs) if that's a word, I'm making up words today, but not necessarily the the most common is uh, the stipulations that bind third parties.
1: Interesting. So parties that aren't even technically a party to the contract are brought in in a special stipulation and supposedly bound to some agreement that they haven't agreed to? That's correct.
0: And the reason that, you know, the reason for the crawling of the skin is that a lot of times who they're trying to bind is the closing attorney in the transaction. So they're saying the closing attorney is going to do X, the closing attorney is going to do Y. It's usually things I don't want to do. Like I am going to hold the one that we're seeing most often right now is because sellers are still to this day uh, staying in the property past the time of closing. And we can make a whole episode about what horrible things can can happen when that happens. But I also know the reality of why it happens happens. Um, I'm not ignorant of that, Um, but what we're starting to see is almost like a rental security deposit that the seller is putting down, and what the agents are writing into the contract is that the closing attorney is going to be the holder of the security deposit.
1: I understand immediately why you don't want to do that, because now we enter into a possible he said, she said situation. This wasn't damaged when I did my final walkthrough. No, it wasn't. Yes, it was. Having to make the decision of
0: how and when and to whom that money is dispersed, right? Exactly. And, you know, when you're writing a stipulation, the intent is is clarity and, and objectivity. And what you've written is a stipulation that's wholly subjective, too. Not only is it not bound, a third party, because you cannot make me do anything that I didn't actually agree in writing to do but even you know one of the reasons that I don't want to do it to begin with is because what it's really saying is the condition of the property is going to be is going to be acceptable. How the heck am I as the closing attorney supposed to determine whether the property was acceptable? Oh, it's going to be someone's opinion. Well, that's freaking fabulous. Right. So, you know, if the buyer is upset about something else completely unrelated, because something else they found out that the seller said may or may not have been true whatever the thing is that comes up they talk to a neighbor and find out that something happened in the property that they were not aware of that didn't even have to be disclosed. Mm -hmm. If they find out about that then they may just refuse to give permission for the security deposit to be given back and now I'm stuck holding it.
1: Right. I'm glad that one's not common. Right. But obviously it's skin crawly. Yes. What else are you seeing though that's common? Because what I'm thinking is as we discuss some of these common steps, and again, not the funny ones we saw that were really just for attention um, in a multiple offer situation. I'm hoping that some people who might tune into this might hear one of the ones that you're describing and say, oh my gosh, I've been writing that. I need to fix it. I need to stop it. So what are some other ones that you see?
0: One of the other big ones that we've seen are stipulations that violate the mortgage guidelines for particularly government loans. Interesting. There are are certain rights that borrowers have under government loans or would-be borrowers, and one of them is the amendatory clause. Right. Which gives them the protection of not having to buy a property if it's not worth what they're paying for it.
1: So you're talking about... If I do have a buyer using FHA or VA, and I know the last thing I want to do, and if you know me and you're listening to this, you know that I work very heavily to promote VA loans, they're a great product, right. FHA as well, Yeah. but you're saying if I'm representing a VA or an FHA buyer and I write in an appraisal gap, for example, even if the intent of my buyer 100% is to cover that appraisal gap, right? The amendatory clause or the escape clause can actually work against that stipulation and the amendatory or escape clause will win.
0: That's absolutely right. And if you as a buyer's agent want to put it in the contract because you want to express to the seller that your buyer understands the potential that the house will not appraise and is is willing to come out of pocket, But if you're the listing agent in that transaction, you need to make sure that your seller understands that nothing will bind this buyer to this contract if the house doesn't appraise. Right. And intent
1: is great, but intent doesn't necessarily make it enforceable.
0: Correct. You had a transaction, I believe, where you had someone who bought a property in Georgia and before they even got here, their job situation changed. That's right. That can happen during a contract too. So there may be whole other reasons where normally you had gotten so far into the transaction that the seller really should get the buyer's earnest money per the contract because you you were past any other contingencies. That's right. But that amendatory clause lasts all the way to closing and the seller... We just need to make sure that if we're listing agent on that transaction, that we understand that. Exactly.
1: And I think, too, as long as all the parties are above board and transparent with each other- And knowledgeable. And knowledgeable. And that comes down to the agents understanding what can a stipulation override and what can it not override. Correct. What else do you think we need to be talking about as far as common errors?
0: So one of the little silly ones, and it's the reason that people need to have someone take a look at what it is that they're doing is I've seen, you know, when I teach stipulations classes, which I do, one of the things that I make sure that people understand is that you have to have, to have a contract, you have to have consideration. Right. So that is mutual promises. So the contract in and of itself has mutual promises because a buyer gets a house and a seller gets money at the end of the Mm. day, and both of them have to perform for the other person to get it. When you add a due diligence period in there, what you're giving is the buyer some unilateral right Right. to get out of the contract. When we wrote that, we had to add consideration. So what you'll normally see is $10 uh, um, and other good and valuable consideration of which the sufficiency and receipt is hereby acknowledged which means that the contract on its face says somebody gave somebody 10 bucks right very rarely does the 10 bucks ever actually change hands but you cannot go to court and say it didn't
1: well and it's an interesting conversation to have with buyers and sellers <laughs> too the ones who actually read our contracts which you would hope that every one of your clients would read the contracts right but the ones who who do read it word for word, are usually the ones who come back and say, what's this $10 business and who has to give $10
0: to whom? Exactly. And, and you know, the way we teach it is if you're the seller and you're supposed to get $10 and you ask for the $10, give them the freaking $10 and go on with your life. Um, and, but then when we get past that and we start doing amendments to agreements, The Georgia Association of Realtors has created a blank amendment to agreement form. And we don't know what's going to be put on there because it's just a blank page for agents to write whatever it is that they need to write. So it starts out with that consideration language at the top to cover agents. And I've seen amendments where the agents struck through the consideration and then wrote a stipulation that was wholly one sided. I don't think you should, as an agent, remove something if you don't understand why it was there to begin with.
1: That boilerplate language, again, if we're talking to Georgia realtors or right. any Georgia real estate agent who has paid for access to the Georgia realtor contracts, that boilerplate language has been vetted. And I'm sure that other states and other municipalities and other associations who own their own contracts, it's it's a similar situation. And to your point, removing something, striking through something And no offense to your kind, and I'm talking about lawyers, Cheryl, (laughs) but when I've had clients who are attorneys who like to go through contracts and try to strike things out, we have to have very detailed conversations. Are they a member of the bar in Georgia? Are they a member of the bar? Or do they have a JD, but they're not practicing? Do they understand Georgia real estate law? Are they in a position to truly strike something out without knowing the true ramifications of what it could lead to down the road in the event of a contract dispute or an earnest money dispute, et
0: cetera? Exactly. I mean, because you have not only what these contracts say, but the other other thing that we're looking at when we're building these things is what the case law has been. And that's going to be, you know, when you said are they an attorney in Georgia, you know, what the case law is going to be in the state of Wyoming is not going to be the same case law as we have here in the state of Georgia. So that's important.
1: Right. One of the ones I see, and I want to talk about this because of you know my, my direct connections with the VA, um, teaching the MRP class as I do, um, having helped write that course, is buyer's agents who represent VA eligible borrowers who are getting VA financing, writing in an amount of commission that the buyer will pay to that agent in the event that the property that they want to buy isn't paying what the agent thinks they need to get paid. And I just want to say... Under no uncertain terms, in no way possible, is a VA borrower allowed to pay the real estate agent. Exactly. Now, some of those things may need to change in the coming months, years, if the DOJ lawsuit changes the way that we are compensated as real estate agents. And I understand that that's legislative
0: changes that would need to take place. And I'm not even sure how likely they are because VA borrowers cannot pay our attorney or settlement fees either. And that has been historically causing issues for decades and actually did result in a lawsuit that I'm intimately familiar with, with uh, the VA versus a lender and a settlement agent. And yet there have been no changes to the regulation. So... Well, changes are really tough
1: regarding VA financing because it does literally take an act of Congress. It does have to actually be a bill, but writing a commission into a buyer brokerage agreement or into a contract that a VA borrower using their VA entitlement eligibility will pay their buyer's agent commission. Now, they can, as the seller, pay commissions. Oh, yeah. It's only when they are receiving a VA loan, when they're in the act of applying for and, and securing a VA loan, that they can't do that. But you just can't do it. And at the end of the day, I was actually asked last week, well, the VA can't police real estate agents. So how do they enforce this? They're not in charge of us. Basically, the, this agent said, they're not the boss of me. Right. And what I had to point out was that the lender knows this regulation as well as does the underwriter, as does the VA. And at least one, two, or three of those parties is going to review the settlement statement They're fly before it. you're allowed to close. And it will absolutely come up. And I don't even want to talk about the alternative she mentioned, which was, well, then I'll just have them pay me under the table. And that's a
0: fraud proposition for a whole other day. That is, again, like we say, uh, an entirely different topic Knowing what those regulations are at the very, very beginning means you're going to craft this transaction correctly. What you're not trying to do is add something, you know, literally throwing junk at a wall and see what sticks or see whether it gets caught. I also don't think you want to be the real estate agent who charged a commission to a VA borrower and have this become some sort of a news item. So even if there's no legal liability, there is reputational risk there.
1: I don't think we need to say that you don't want your last name, V, someone, as a lawsuit, as a, as a precedent-setting case
0: exactly. that gets
1: talked about in the real estate community for years to come.
0: No, absolutely not. You don't want that case showing up on the first page of search results when someone looks you up either. Oh,
1: gosh, no. Well, back to special stipulations. Anything else that we um, that you see a lot that we need to discuss before we go into the most helpful section? I think, which
0: is how to write your own. The one last thing that I will say is when you are writing a special stipulation, usually on the day of closing, because maybe something has happened, the mover nicked the wall on the way out and the seller is going to have something fixed after closing. It's something that won't get done before the closing. When you write those stipulations, you always start out with the following words the following items shall survive closing. Yes. Because if you do not use those magic words, everything that you promised to do on that stipulation is going to merge and not be enforceable once I cut checks.
1: And once that closing is over. It's over. All bets are off.
0: That's correct.
1: So I do want to move into what I hope will be really helpful for a lot of people listening. This is something that you taught me forever ago. And I have used it ever since. And that is a formula to use to write your own special steps. Now, we did just just get done telling people, don't write your own steps. But here's where I find it to be really helpful. Sometimes there is something that you need to do that's not already covered in the contract. It's a unique situation. And you need to put verbiage together in order to have the buyer and the seller sign off. Right. Now, for me, the helpful thing—the most helpful thing that you said to me was it should be an if-then statement. There, right. should be con- there should be the thing that shall or shall not be done, and then the consequence if it is or is not done. And the disclaimer we want to give is always run it past your broker or your legal counsel before you write it into the contract and have a client sign off on it. So do the work up front. Write the stip. Write it to be exactly what you think it should be and follow the formula that Cheryl's about to give you. But make sure that you run it past someone who probably is a little more knowledgeable in this area than you are. Bonus points if it's an actual attorney who can, rather than just your broker, and I say just your broker because your broker may also say, I'm not qualified to do this. Let's send it to legal.
0: I don't already, I've not seen this one before. It's unique.
1: Right. In order for something to be clear, but more importantly, enforceable, tell us a little bit more about that special
0: formula, Cheryl. When you're writing a stipulation, I think the the issue that most agents have is being more brief than they need to be. And I'm not trying to overcomplicate the world, but it is is almost as if you're writing a news article. It's the who, what, when, why, where. But the other part of it, and that's really what you were talking about, the if-then is what happens if the party who is supposed to do something doesn't do it? And you really, you have to think about that. And one of the other reasons to give this to a, uh, someone else to look at is they're not in the middle of your transaction. Mm. They see the whole forest and you're kind of stuck in a couple of the trees. They have a more objective look at it because they haven't had all of the conversations. But where I see we, that we fail the most is the win. And the what happens if there's a default. Right. So if we don't have a deadline for the seller to make a certain repair, what is our deadline?
1: When we're sitting down at the closing table.
0: Yeah, or midnight that night. I mean, you know, in theory, if they want to go get it finished by 1159, they could certainly do that. And so my question when I'm teaching these classes to agents is, is the day of closing the best time to find out that the seller hasn't made a repair that they're not supposed to make or that they were supposed to? No. And then the question is, if the seller didn't make a repair that the seller was supposed to make, what is the result for the buyer? What are the buyer's options at that point? And and a lot of agents will say, well, they can extend the closing. That's not what the contract says. Right. Uh, I have written a stipulation that goes down that road, and I called Mora as I was putting it together because... I kept getting the same issues over and over again, which is we run up on closing and the seller didn't do something that they were supposed to do. And what rights does the buyer have at that point? And really, unless you say otherwise, the buyer has the right not to close. That's not super helpful for buyers.
1: Especially a buyer who doesn't want an excuse to get out of the contract. If they really want the house and they're just mildly annoyed or moderately frustrated or really pissed off anywhere on that sliding scale about this item that wasn't done that doesn't mean that they're like oh good now I don't have to buy the house because oftentimes it's not just the money they've already sunk into the deal it's not just the time but maybe they've had several offers that didn't work out in multiple offers or for other reasons and this was their final breath of fresh air like oh now we get this house walking away is not always the best option
0: and it rarely is i mean they oftentimes already have stuff packed up to move on a truck they have already called contractors to come in and repaint you know or do whatever else work that they need to do so giving them that out the, the other part of it on the win, the reason to set a deadline that isn't your closing day is you're really building for failure. So if I'm the buyer of property and the seller was supposed to do something, you know, seven to 10 days before closing, and they get it done six days before closing, I'm really okay. Mm -hmm. I don't really care. Right. And the other, and I know you've, you've called me about this before, you've had buyer's agents who have asked for copies of receipts, and you have told buyer's agents, well, I'll get you the copies of the receipts as soon as the seller makes the repair. The deadline hasn't come yet. And the buyer's agent is saying, well, the lender won't get it out of underwriting. They won't clear this thing to close. And although that's a problem for everyone, it's a problem created by the buyer side in writing the offer.
1: Not only that, oftentimes those requests for those receipts, those frantic, urgent, what do you mean it hasn't been done yet, are people who didn't assign an actual deadline. They left the deadline as what's in the contract, which is either, depending on how you look at it, the closing table or 11.59 p.m. that night. Exactly. It's always interesting to me when I receive offers on my properties to see the way that agents are writing stipulations. It's similarly interesting when I'm submitting offers on my clients' behalf. There seems to be a fear to go back to your comment about it's almost like writing a news article. There seems to be a fear of more words rather than fewer. It's it's like our colleagues are being charged by the word yeah. and writing shorter and shorter stipulations rather than understanding that as long as the language is clear, And I'm going to go ahead and say it grammatically correct and understandable by all parties with the who, what, where, when, why, how and deadline written in. The more words, the better, which is why, as we get to this last little bit about the resources that are available, especially to Georgia Realtors and real estate agents who buy access to the forms, the Georgia Realtors Special Stips Library.
0: Exactly. I will say when I do teach the classes, almost every class that involves at least a portion of the contract or the STIP or whatever, I will introduce people to the Georgia Realtor website. And you have access to that in any case if you've paid for the forms and you've been given the access to it. There under law and ethics, there are downloadable contract forms. Most agents have never seen this part of the website because they don't need it. Agents use different doc production systems sure. in order to produce their contracts. But I have, and you can tell me if your opinion is different, I've asked agents, is it easy to find stipulations in there when you're writing those contracts? And I get more negative responses than positive ones in trying to pull them up. On the the georgiarealtor.com website, you have the ability to pull down a single PDF document that has every single special stipulation on it. And because it's a PDF document, you can also use the find function.
1: That's exactly what we do. And we search keywords or key phrases. If I'm looking for a stipulation about an appraisal, for example, or I'm looking for a stipulation about due diligence or inspection or repairs, I just use that command find or control Control-F, Command-F, whether you're a PC or a Mac user. Exactly. And search keywords and phrases. But again, you'll notice if, you, if, if you're if you listening and you're in Georgia and you go and you download that single PDF of all the special steps, which is also available, for example, if you use the doc prep in FMLS and you can pull in from there you'll notice that those stipulations are not short. They are large paragraphs. And oftentimes it's because we have to cover so much information. And again, to go back to that comment about it's like writing a news article and the fear that I sense, whether it's, acknowledged or subconscious that more words equals bad or more words is scarier to a seller. And if I had a dollar for every time I've submitted an offer to an agent and called them to discuss it and they've made a derogatory or snarky comment about the special steps page, when I ask them, well, did you just glance at the page? Did you skim it or did you actually read it? More often than not, They just glanced at it and sent it on to their client. They didn't actually read to see that the stipulations, many of which come from the Georgia Stips, Georgia Realtor Stips, and then others that I've written and vetted, they don't actually read them to see, oh, you're not writing scary stuff. You're actually just covering all the bases for everybody.
0: And there may be more than one of them there. There may be a few because you have set stips that you always include in certain situations, right? Of course. So you've got like little buckets, of steps. And you are going to use these three when I have this sort of circumstance. I'm going to use these five when it's something else. And It should neither be more nor less than what you actually need. Right. It should be in the Goldilocks zone of just right. So that may be a few things. But yes, those STIPs are out there. The other is that you can use those even if you can't find a STIP that's produced by GAR that directly hits your point. You can find one that is darn well close. That's right. Even I as an attorney will do that. I got a request. I had a situation where the agent was dealing with, I was dealing with the buyer's agent. The seller refused to have the gas turned on. They Mm. had never used it. I think it was only used for cooking, obviously not for heat, and had never turned it on and refused to turn it on. Now, it's contractually required that the seller cause all utilities to be on, but the buyer was willing to let that part go. The only question they had is, what happens if we go to turn the gas on once we get into the property and it's not there? Well, there's no stip for that. Right. But there is a stipulation that's written by GAR that covers items that cannot be assessed due to seasonal issues. Mm -hmm. So think about a pool system in the dead of winter where it may be winterized.
1: Or you can't test air conditioning in the winter or heat in the summer.
0: Exactly. Mm -hmm. So there's a stipulation that says, once I can check this thing, then the seller is responsible and oh by the way this item survives closing because it's right clearly something that's happening out of closing so what i did was i took that and i rewrote it a little bit to cover the other circumstance right and that's what agents can do and then obviously send it over to an attorney i agree with you i want you to write it first because i want to know where where you were trying to go
1: right what have you already discussed with your client What are the circumstances surrounding the need for the stipulation? Because a lot of times that will be very clear if you've written it yourself first, rather than just calling your attorney and saying, hey, the seller won't turn on the gas. I need a stip for that. Exactly. It's very unclear why you need it until you start to
0: piece it together yourself well and when I teach that there's a question and you know I have to credit Howell Hansen who put together some of these classes before I was even an attorney one of the things that he that he asked in the in some of these contract classes is who's the expert on the contract and it gave the option of the real estate agent and the attorney and most of the agents will say that the attorney is the expert on the contract i am not i am the expert on contracts you are the expert as the real estate agent on on this contract, for your transaction, for your buyer, for your seller, you are the absolute expert in that.
1: Right. We hope this was a helpful conversation. I hope you got a little entertainment from the silly stipulations that we gave you examples of in the beginning and some actual helpful information to help you to craft better stipulations with, of course, the disclaimer that you then need to run them past your broker and your legal counsel. Absolutely. Anything else you want to add, Cheryl?
0: Well, you know, I, I just keep thinking about that Bama step and I just feel like I have to say, um, go Tigers.
1: Go Knowles, Have a great day, y'all. Bye guys. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Real Smart.
0: Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, and share with your friends.